from 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thank you. You may be seated. Anybody a fan get excited about the Olympics? I'm not as much as I used to be, but I remember being young, getting so excited every four years, and the names ringing in my ears, Mary Lou Retton and Carl Lewis, and those you know, back, back in the 80s specifically that I'm thinking about. Every four years just getting excited to watch the spectacle of the games. And as excited as I got, and as big as a deal as it was to me, imagine being a participant in the Olympics. These athletes had trained for hours and hours and hours, some of them for most of their lives, for these moments. I looked into some of the bigger names in Olympic lore, more recent Olympic lore, to see how much training was quote-unquote normal for these abnormal people, and I do think they are abnormal. And so much of that, this next section I got from an article by Royan Kamyar, who is a MD, MBA. This guy's got too many letters after his name. Um, but he did, he did research into the training and the structure of the days for some of these people, starting with Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps started swimming competitively at age seven and already held a national record for his age group in the 100-meter butterfly by age 10. According to his coach, Bob Bowman, Phelps, listen to this, didn't miss a morning practice from the age of 11 through 16 years old. He would practice on Sundays, birthdays, and Christmas mornings to keep his competitive edge. Simone Biles started gymnastics at age six and began training with a professional coach at eight years of age. Before starting high school, Biles switched to homeschool in order to boost her training hours from 20 hours a week to 32 hours a week. Her parents even built a gymnasium nearby their estate in Spring, Texas to reduce her commute time to less than 10 minutes to increase her time so that she could train. The approximately 6,000 to 7,000 hours of training she received during her homeschooling years, combined with her previous training, ensured that she had crossed the 10,000 hours mark before competing in her first Olympics at Rio in 2016. They say at 10,000 hours, you have mastered something. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about that. Wow! 20 hours a week, 32 hours a week, never missing a morning for seven years, some of these people. A commitment to train, to labor, to strive. A commitment to excellence, a commitment hopefully to glory, but watch this. 
Margot Isaacson, 24, at this time of the writing of this article, a modern pentathlete and three-time Olympian, finished fourth at the London Olympics in 2012, very close to a medal. And she says this, I just remember thinking, wow, if I had run a second faster or I'd got one extra fencing touch, then I'd have a medal. And I just came home and felt so defeated and so sad. After finishing 20th in the Rio Games in 2016, she went into what she calls post-Olympics depression. It makes you feel sort of worthless, she said. It's a really strong word, but that's kind of how I feel right now. I really feel like I've let myself down, let my coaches down, and that's hard. And then you don't know if you want to put yourself through that again, she said. Thousands and thousands of hours of training. Sometimes for an event that might last for less than a minute. And no guarantee of success. You might lose. You might be running and fall down. You might fail. And then even if you do win, what then? You figure they may suffer from post-games letdown, like she said, yeah. With the games being every four years, there are plenty of folks who train all those hours and make it to one Olympics game, one Olympic event, maybe in their teens or early adulthood, and then that's it. It's time to move on then. Time to find a new dream. And the first part of your life is gone. It's over. And what if you failed? Well, you can't fail if you make it to the Olympics. Tell them that. Tell this... Margot Isaacson, that, who missed a medal by maybe one second in her running. What a letdown. But their commitment to training, to excellence, to striving, to not missing a morning is quite impressive. All that work, all those hours training, being in the top 1% of athletes in the world... And then running the risk of just feeling worthless, pointless, or even feeling like a failure. It's awfully sad, I think. Especially after seeing those stories of determination and hard work. Was it all for nothing? Well, our passage today addresses these lines of thought in the life of a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul is going to push Timothy, and I think us, to strain, struggle, push and train, but he won't leave Timothy and he won't leave us without giving a roadmap for success and a hope of eternal glory. So we'll start in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now let's remember where we've been so far in our study. We're working through the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, focusing on Paul's instructions and exhortations for his two young disciples, Timothy and Titus. And Paul had many more disciples than this, but these books are focused on these two guys. And he's given specific directions for these young men to lead the church of Jesus Christ in a manner faithful to the pure doctrine and the best practices. And our journey started here in 1 Timothy where Paul has called Timothy to champion the doctrine and called for clear roles for those in the church in Ephesus where Paul had left Timothy. And there were things going on in Ephesus with teachers veering off the road of the sound doctrine, men's and women's roles, and people leaving the faith, which is where we were last week. So now Paul turns his attention to Timothy specifically. And what follows is Paul exhorting Timothy directly, calling Timothy to be a good servant, as we see at the beginning of verse 6 there. And we finished last week with Paul reminding Timothy that abstinence from marriage and certain foods was not the path that Timothy was to lead on. Timothy was to correct these notions of pursuing holiness through thou shalt nots, and by reminding the church that receiving good gifts from God is a way to give him glory. And now, here in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy that if Timothy puts these things before the brothers, if he teaches them these things, then Timothy will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And that's the point of this section today. 
What Timothy, and therefore what we, need to do in order to be a good servant. Diakonos is the word for servant of Christ Jesus. What does it mean, what does it look like to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? And note that Timothy is serving the church, yes, but ultimately and mainly and thankfully, that means that he's serving Christ Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus had said to Saul on the road to Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? When he said that he was persecuting the church. And through this passage, don't forget this. Timothy's calling, your calling, my calling, by working with, and in Timothy's case, in leading this church, the goal, the calling, is to be a servant of Christ Jesus. This is the why that leads to the what. Why am I going to do what I'm going to do? And it's to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, which is our main, really our only goal in all that we do. Remember your why. Because things are going to get intense in this passage. They're going to get hard. It's filled with passionate fever words, this passage is. And they're going to get hard, and then they're going to get harder. And Paul prefaces this call to tough sledding by reminding Timothy from whence he has come. He reminds Timothy that he's been trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that Timothy had followed. Well, who, who trained Timothy? We looked at this before, 2 Timothy 1.5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well, 2 Timothy 3.14 and 15. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed no Knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy was taught the scriptures by his grandmother and his mom. But also, don't forget, Timothy's been with Paul. Timothy has personally been discipled by the apostle who had received direct revelation from Jesus himself. So Timothy's been trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that Timothy's known since he was a kid, and he's followed them since he was a kid, because his grandmother and his mother were faithful to impart that word to him. And note that word trained back there in 1 Timothy 4. Being trained in the words of the faith. That word's pretty important in our passage today. The word trained. It's the Greek word manos, and it refers to forming the mind here. This training is. Timothy has had his mind formed, his mind trained and nourished, both in the Old Testament scriptures and in the doctrine of Christ as the fulfillment and reason for those Old Testament scriptures by his grandmother, his mother, and Paul. And now watch this, verses 7 to 9. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, and here's that word again, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now first, in Paul's calling Timothy to train himself, first thing he does is he calls Timothy away from the fluff. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And Paul uses a Jewish idiom here, and it's bubby mesis, and it means grandmother's stories. We would say old wives' tales. David Stern, in his commentary, his Jewish commentary on the New Testament, says it carries the connotation of things told or believed only by silly, superstitious old women. And the Greco-Roman mind would understand myths with all their gods and goddesses, right? Myths are stories that have a religious tinge to them, but they're stories. They're not real events. Surely some real events have been mythicized, made into myths, but there's nothing tangible to myths. And back in chapter 1, Paul had said that Timothy was to teach certain persons not to teach different doctrines. And back in 1.4 he says, "...nor to devote themselves to myths." 
and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God. That is by faith. So he's already addressed this myths thing. Myths had become a way of life for these false teachers. Telling stories, not living or teaching what's real. They're making stuff up, basically. And Paul tells Timothy, back in 4-7, to have nothing to do with this irreverent, silly, with these irreverent, silly myths. Don't even engage them. They're not worth your time. Rather, and here we go, Timothy was to train himself for what? For godliness. Okay, don't, don't mess with the myths. That's silly. It's not even worth your time. Rather... Train yourself for godliness. Now the word for train here is gumnazo. We get our word gymnasium from this word. And it means to exercise vigorously, either in body or the mind. And it means, again, exercise vigorously. Because that's going to be the tone of the rest of this passage. We basically need somebody to just start playing Eye of the Tiger here. It's, it's like a rocky training montage time. It's like, do, 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 and like Timothy's doing push-ups while he's like reading the Bible or something, you know. That, that's our tone here. Vigorous training. And who's supposed to be doing this vigorous training? Timothy is to train Timothy. Timothy is to train himself. And again, what's he training for? He's training for godliness, behaving in a way that glorifies God. Train yourself vigorously, Timothy, in godliness. Don't give attention to irreverent, silly myths. Don't amuse yourself silly. Instead, focus your attention, your effort, your affections on godliness and work hard at it. And after the call to training, Paul contrasts training and godliness with what? Bodily training. Now this is interesting. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. But don't get me wrong, Paul seems to say, because while I'm talking about training, I'm not talking about your body. Bodily exercise or training is of some value... But it's only of some value. It's temporary. It's short-term to say the least. And can I get an amen about the short-term effects of exercise, right? It's a very short shelf life for exercise. I can do good for a week, but if I miss a few days, it's like I missed a month, right? Kind of flees away. Ask a former Olympian, right? No, Paul's not talking about bodily training. He's talking about training in godliness, which is of value, Paul says, in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This training, this godliness, is not just a flash in the pan that makes you feel good right now and then you forget it later, work hard and then lose it overnight. No, godliness, listen to me, is worthy training because you're training yourself in something that helps you both now and in eternity. Even. Promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And this is a really big deal because if Timothy's going to exert himself, expend himself in this training for godliness, he needs to know that the reward is worth it, right? And blessings here and now and all the way into eternity, well, that's worth it, right? I think part of our problem is we just don't. We don't understand eternity, and therefore we don't think about it much. We don't engage in it much. And Paul's saying there's eternal worth in training for godliness. And you need to remember that, Timothy, that this is eternal. Blessings here and now all the way into eternity. The contrast is between physical temporal training and spiritual eternal training. Which one is really the better, more beneficial discipline? And this echoes the call for modesty and internal beauty back in the passage about the ladies because that was versus outward adornment. Don't adorn yourself outwardly, but instead be modest and have an internal beauty. That's what's important. And that's the same feel here. Which is of greater benefit? Outward outward adornment and beauty or inner beauty and modesty? Which is more important? Temporal physical exercise 
or eternal spiritual exercise. Training in godliness is hard, but Paul says it's worth it now and forever. And he includes our familiar phrase, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This was either something that was widely talked about already, or Paul intended for it to become widely catechismic. Not cataclysmic, catechismic. I made that word up. And again, he's drilling home the why. Because there's a great benefit in it, in time and then into forever. And where should we be focusing on storing up treasures for ourselves? Jesus, this is like Christianity 101, right? Don't store up treasures here, but store up treasures in heaven. In eternity. Well, dig in, Paul says in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive... Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And this verse is awesome. So much here. Paul has called Timothy to train himself in godliness in light of eternity. And now here he says, For to this end we toil and strive. Again, not for a temporary fix or for fleeting pleasure, but for eternal rewards. To this end. For to this end. See, Timothy, this is the reason. And with that reason in mind, we toil and strive. Two great words there, toil and strive, both of which paint a picture of suffering, of hardship, of struggle, of agonizing. There's a wonderful eternal purpose in all of this, and that's what we work toward, toiling and striving, laboring intensively. And you want another, want another good reason why? Because we have set our hope on the living God. We have our hope set on the living God. Because, this is reasoning about reasons here, we have our hope set. Hope is not, oh, I hope it happens, but rather I have hope because it's going to happen. I can make it through the winter, praise God, because spring and summer will come. And our hope is set on not sunny days, but on the living God. In Paul's world and in ours, people give their worship to gods that are not alive. They're dead gods. Inanimate objects, riches, idols, both graven and imagined. But our hope is in the one God who is literally alive. And the Greek word for living, as far as living God, is zoe, which reaching way back to our series in John's Gospel, back at the Seventh-day Adventist building, the word zoe, this word means overflowing too much to handle life that overflows into life eternal. Our hope is set on the God who is life, who gives life, and who surely is alive. And this God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, don't get too hung up on that phrase. That's not a theological hornet's nest. Some people have made it one. As we've said time and again, and we'll continue to say as it comes up, we know that not everyone will be saved. We're not universalists, nor was Paul, nor was Jesus, nor is the Bible. So that's not what Paul means here by God being the Savior of all people. And we talked briefly on Wednesday that God doesn't give people just enough grace to bring them to a point of decision and then it's up to them to decide as if that's what it means by Him being the Savior of all people and then it's up to you to believe it. And only some will be saved. No, the word Savior here isn't referring to salvation from sins. Many people in the Bible are called Saviors. The judges, as imperfect as they were, were called Saviors at some points. David is called a savior and others. Sometimes savior means helper, deliverer, sustainer. Kings are saviors of their people. They protect them and make life possible. And the living God is surely the maker and giver of life to everyone, making him their savior. He's everyone's savior in that aspect. And God is especially the savior of those who believe. He's a particular kind of savior to them, which is Paul's emphasis and which just further gives credence to this thought pattern. God gives life to and sustains all people, and He especially, particularly, powerfully, salvifically saves those who believe in Him. Which again, we we talked about on Wednesday night as far as belief and what that means. Go back and watch that John Piper video. It was a good one. So again, Timothy, since all of this is true, toil and strive, struggle, Work hard toward godliness. 
You're like, man, I'm glad I'm not Timothy. Well, guess what? It's not just for Timothy. Verse 11, command and teach these things. So it's not just Timothy, but to those under his care. So what I'm teaching you, Timothy, what I'm commanding you, command and teach to those under your care. Yeah, Timothy should toil and strive for godliness, but he's also supposed to command and teach these things as well. And note those words, command and teach. This is a command issue. It's not an appeal to your feelings, as if if you don't feel like it today, you shouldn't do it. I just don't feel like going to church today. I just don't feel like reading my Bible today. I just don't feel like praying today. He didn't say, tell them to get to it if they feel like it. Not to be gotten to if it's convenient or favorable to you. No! Command these things, Timothy, to the people of God. Command them to work hard to pursue godliness. Command them to do that. And command means command. That's an order. And then you teach it. Teaching is showing how to carry out the commandment. Here's the command and here's how you do it. Command and teach. Timothy, push these people and equip them to pursue holiness, godliness. If you command and teach these things, Timothy, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And that makes sense, but Timothy himself has some unique challenges in trying to do these things. Just himself. And Paul knows his disciple and what's going to help him the most. So verse 12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. So he just knows that as Timothy's reading this, Timothy's thinking, who am I to command anybody? Timothy, they think, was probably in his early 30s at this time. Paul says this to the Corinthians in his letter to them in 1 Corinthians 16, 10-11, speaking of Timothy. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. And just from the tone of that, it just seems like Timothy was a bit timid, a little bit withdrawn, a little bit afraid, a bit uneasy on a consistent basis. And he had probably, and this is just me figuring this out, okay, this isn't divine, divinely inspired, he probably had said to Paul many times, Paul, I feel like I'm not adequate for this. I feel like I'm too young. I, don't, I shouldn't be telling older people what to do. And so here... In this timidity, timid Timothy, Paul says, hey, listen. In the presence of older, maybe more aggressive people, Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth. Paul is saying that Timothy doesn't have to take junk from folks who would call him young man or the kid or little fella. Don't let them despise you because of your youth. The word despise means to disdain or to think little of someone. Paul says, Timothy, you're young, but don't let that slow you down. Why? Because remember, you're proclaiming the truth of God. Not your personal preferences. Not your experiences. And even as young as you are, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to set the believers an example. Age aside. Timothy is to show these Ephesians what godliness looks like. Yes, teach it, but also do it. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Yeah, no big deal at all there, right? (laughs) Wow. Timothy, show them how to conduct themselves. Show them how to love. Show them what faith is. Show them how to be pure by how you live. Oh, man. Talk about a tall order. I'd just as soon get back to toiling and striving if that's all right. Because I think I can do this, but that. But this, this is, this is not just hard. This is overly intimidating. Timothy, your life is to be the ultimate proof of the truth of the glorious doctrine of the living God. Now swallow that. Your life is to be the ultimate proof of the truth of the glorious doctrine of the living God. Set them an example. You, Timothy, be their example. What a calling. And as I evaluate my speech, my conduct, my love, my faith, my purity, it makes me shake in my crocs a little bit, y'all. 
can the living God hold me up and say, yeah, do it like he's doing it? And it does make me, and I don't say this to be silly or to deflect, but it makes me even more thankful for Don and Bob who have walked this road longer and better than me. Because I don't know how I hold up to this. Being your example. In my speech, my conduct, my love, my faith, my purity. This passage has brought me low, and that's a good thing. But, Timothy, Paul says, this is how you're going to show them what all this is about. By what you do. Teach them, command them, yes, and then do it so that they can see it. And thankfully there's more, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Okay, good. (laughs) Here Paul kind of rattles the cage of him making appearance there in Ephesus again. By saying, until I come. Paul is sure. Paul surely intends to get there. The weasel. Let me start that over. Uh, yeah, I can't. Don't follow my example there. <laughs> Buddy. Paul surely intends to get there, to Ephesus. But Timothy has work to do until Paul gets there. And in addition to what he's already said in today's passage, which is a lot, he calls Timothy to devote himself to three other things. The public reading of the scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now the word for devote yourself is another word that implies intense, purposeful effort. It means to turn the mind to, to be attentive to something. And those somethings, of course, center around what? The Bible. The public reading of the scriptures. The whole Bible is full of references to having the Word of God read in the gathering of the congregation of God's people. And that reading, while good, is best accompanied by some preaching, to exhortation and to teaching. The words are worth noting. Exhortation is paraklesis in the Greek. In the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is called the paraklete. Paraclesis, paraclete, you hear that? And there, that word means helper. So to paraclesis is to help to understand by instructive, often stirring discourse. And teaching is the Greek word didaskalia, and it means to instruct with doctrine and precepts. Read the Bible to the group and instruct the group on how to carry out the doctrine and the precepts found there. And again, remember... Timothy is to devote himself to this. And Paul reminds Timothy why it's his, why it's Timothy's charge to do this. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And we've mentioned this again in a previous passage, so we won't go too far into it. But Timothy had went through some sort of ordination some sort of sending out type of ceremony. And during that time, it was spoken over him by elders that he would be gifted to teach, to lead, to serve, and instruct as a form of ministry in his life. And Paul reminds him of this. Remember that, Timothy? You ever just had one of those top-of-the-mountain moments, and man, you come down and you're just on fire. And you're like, man, I just I feel like I could take on the whole empire by myself, the whole world by myself. And, and, and you're just like, I could do it all. And after a little while, you kind of forget, right? Paul says, Timothy, remember that? And boy, do we need that from each other. Paul reminds him, calling to mind that sacred time when the council of elders laid their hands on him, prayed for him, sent him out to do what he's being called to do by God then and by Paul now. And I love that. Paul doesn't just point forward to urge Timothy on. He also looks back. Commentators Griffin and Lee say it this way, Much Christian teaching involves reminding ourselves and others of beliefs and practices we know but ignore or forget. Paul commended Timothy's obedience and implied that he was to continue in more of the same, end of quote. It's kind of like why we do this every week, right? And we've said it so many times, remember and proclaim. 
So Paul says, remember, Timothy, don't just strain forward. Get the strength to strain forward by looking backward. And then this immense passage from today ends with these two monumental verses. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I need that tattooed on my forehead. Okay, that's not really what I mean. I need it where I can see it a lot. Okay. And I said in application last week that that was the first time I'd ever used part of the next week's text in an application point. But I really think we could use these two verses every week for application. Literally. Just take the action words here and look at them. Practice, immerse, see, keep a close watch, persist, save. And you're saying there's other action words, but I'm just pointing those out specifically. Wow. Paul tells Timothy that Timothy should be consistently doing these things. He should be practicing them. They are to be his lifestyle. Immerse yourself in them. The literal wording here is practice these, be in them. Like we're immersed in water when we dive into a pool. Like we're immersed in air right now. Be in these things. Head to toe, completely, all the time. But why? So that all may see your progress. Wow. People should be observing Timothy and saying, I can tell he's more godly now than he was when he got here. He's more godly now than he was last week. And as you are in them, immersed in them, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Pay attention to who you are. Pay attention to what you're doing. And while you're at it, do the same with the teaching. I think by this point of 1 Timothy, we can see pretty clearly through the last several messages that doctrine is a pretty important point in this letter. Pay attention to your teaching, Timothy. Stop being divided in your attention and your affection when it comes to your life and to your conduct and to the teaching. Persist in this. Tarry. Continue in. Abide. Remain. Persevere in this. Because it's important. And why is it important? Why this fuss? For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And maybe some of you are going... What? He's supposed to save himself? He's supposed to save other people? Now we know, hopefully we know, if you don't know, you're about to know, no person saves no other person. But you said it. I mean, you just just said that, right? Salvation belongs to God. And only God can save people. And... I won't say but. Matter of fact, I'm gonna, I've got but there. I'm going to mark it out. And as both Alistair Begg and John MacArthur said in their messages on this passage, and I'm sure many others have noted, God saves and He uses means to save people. Amen. The gospel is proclaimed and God saves people. And who preaches the gospel? A preacher. Sent and gifted and empowered by God. And who gets the glory for it? Not the preacher. God gets the glory. John Calvin notes, God's glory is in no way diminished by His using the labor of men in bestowing salvation. End of quote. So Timothy, as you labor, as you strive, as you work, as you train, practice, and persist in these things, God will use your labor to save you and those that you are serving. It is of utmost importance. It is, it is of the highest priority. It is of eternal consequence. It is so much more than worth it. So, Timothy, 
Do the work of your ministry, preaching and teaching the Word of God, living in such a way that people see the power of God in you, and live in the power of God to the glory of God and for the good of God's people. And immerse yourself in this. Persist in this. Because that's what it looks like to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. All right, Timothy. Time to turn our focus away from you and turn the mirror onto ourselves. Application through three E's. E-E-E. Energy. Example. And eternity. Energy. Example. And eternity. So much application. But we'll just look briefly at these three points. Oh, I've got plenty of time. First application point is energy. The pursuit of godliness in your life, in my life, is not just going to happen. Gravity gets us. Entropy gets us. And if we're not straining forward, we are drifting backwards. We must, all of us, exert ourselves. Be careful there, I'll get back to that. And operate in the power of the Holy Spirit to make progress in this work of what we call sanctification. In our pursuit of godliness, it's not just going to happen. It's going to take some intentional, purposeful, hard, striving energy. Now let me ask you, how much energy in your life is spent toward pursuing godliness? If I could kick myself in the behind, I would when I ask this question. How much of my time, how much of my energy, how much of my resources is devoted to godliness? Not enough. It's the holidays, right? We're right here looking at Thanksgiving and then Advent and Christmas and There's birthdays in that for us and there's focus on people and that's wonderful, that's good. Being together with family, but man, we get distracted from the old Christmas. What really matters? Are the presents pretty? Did they cost enough? We're so easily distracted from what really matters. And that's our natural sinful bent. How much energy are you devoting to your pursuit of godliness in the holidays, in every day? I'm going to read a longer passage than normal for an application point. And it's, it's a passage that I've used a bit of a lot of times in an application point. But watch this. And you're familiar with this more than likely. Philippians 3. Paul says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had back in my Jewish pharisaical life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible... I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Scan that again. Loss. Suffered. Rubbish. Faith. Power. Sufferings. Death. Any means possible. Attain. Not that I've already obtained. I press on. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Now those are struggle words. Those are hard effort words. And so naturally I'm going to tell you, you're not doing enough, right? You're not trying hard enough to do better enough. Maybe. Sort of. First and foremost, I would say to this passage, please know this is not striving for salvation. He knows whom he's placed his faith in, and his, Paul's writings are replete with him saying, I know that it's Christ who saved me. But it is striving toward, listen to this, perfect cooperation with the Holy Spirit in us. That's what we're striving toward. That's what we're pushing for. Perfect cooperation with the Holy Spirit in us. And it seems to me that it's more of a cutting away than it is an adding anything. We've been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. We've got to cut away our attention and our affection for the things out there in the world, for the idols that our heart manufactures. Cut those things away. Be done with those. Hebrews 12, 1-2 Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. That's the picture that I'm seeing here. And sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I love this picture of laying aside the weight. Laying aside the sin. That's what I see in this striving. In this effort. Oh, it's going to hurt. It's going to cut away things that I hold dear. It's going to call for more time. It's going to call, time. It's going to call for more attention. It's going to call for more of my heart. And I make room for that. The, the Advent mindset. Let every heart prepare him room. There was no room for him in the end. How many times is there not room for him here? So move the furniture. Have a bonfire outside. Get rid of the junk. Let it burn. Suffer the loss of all things in order that you may gain the attention, the affection, the power, the glory of the living Christ in you by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And we can't... That's not an attack on or an addendum. Oh yeah, let the Holy Spirit do it. No, no, no. Complete, total cooperation with the Holy Spirit whom God has caused to dwell in us. The old hymn, turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. You can have them. Take the world, but give me Jesus. That's the mindset here. Labor, toil, strive toward that. I just want to set my face toward the King. I want blinders on. I don't want to be drawn by the attention and affection and circus of the world. I just want Jesus. Until we have one pure and holy passion, one magnificent obsession. Jesus, give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. That's what we're talking about here. Not working harder to try better to keep your list and make yourself look better than everybody else. It's not the goal. The goal is life in and through Christ and Christ alone. Christ in you who is the hope of glory. And the old and I couldn't find who said this. I think it's attributed to 28 different people. Don't attribute it to me. When Jesus is all you have, you realize that he's all you need. 
And not only that, you realize he's all you really want. Cut the rest of this stuff away. Count it as rubbish. Lay aside the sin that holds us down and clings to us and run free toward the face of Jesus. That's the energy that we're talking about to expend. Energy. Example. And this is a short one. This is quick. We talked last week about being an example, right? But today I want to ask you individually, who are you looking to as an example? Mega church pastor? Somebody that's got a lot of likes and follows? A blogger? A vlogger? Look around this building this morning. Find you somebody who in your mind and heart is the godliest person you know. That your physical eyes can see them physically and follow their example. They ain't perfect. I don't know who they are. They're going to mess up. Ask them to help you. Ask them to mentor you. Mentor. Ask them to instruct you. Ask them to pour themselves into you. I think we belabor the point that people should be finding people disciple. You should be discipling people. You should be discipling people. I would say we should need to be saying you need to be discipled as well. Find somebody who is the godliest person you see and know and say, I want to be like you and I'm setting my eyes on you. Tell them that. See if it changes their life. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Dude, you picked. Okay. All right. Look what Paul says in the next passage in Philippians 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, now watch this, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Who is your example? Is your example somebody whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, whose minds are set on earthly things? Oh, we've got heroes, and we set our eyes on people and things. But I'm asking you, I'm begging you this morning, especially you younger folks, pick somebody in this congregation, set your eyes on them and tell them I'm watching you. And I want to be just like you. Just don't pick me. I don't have a choice. Energy example and finally eternity. R.C. Sproul says, what we do today matters for eternity. And I don't live with that realization nearly enough. It all matters. Every single thing we watch, listen to, think, feel, do, say, eat, drink. It all matters. And it all matters for eternity. Now, I've got some of my chili back there. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to eat it because it may give me heartburn later. And Leon's saying, Janetta, please don't. Just please don't. (laughs) Short-term thinking. It's beneficial. Saves me heartburn later. But what if... What if I measured everything I did in light of eternity? What kind of people would we be if our thoughts, our passions, our drives, our goals were eternal ones, not temporal ones? We are far too earthly minded. And I'm saying that to myself. Paul talked about training of the body and MacArthur referenced the cult of the body beautiful. How much time do we spend beautifying ourselves and our outward appearance? And Paul said today that even exercise, as good as it is for us, and you should exercise, by the way. This is not a passage saying don't exercise. Just saying the rewards are fleeting. It only gives a little, tiny, fleeting benefit. And then he calls us to have an eternal perspective and therefore devote yourself, even in your physical training, to an eternal perspective. Are you building toward forever or are you focused on the here and now? There's something beyond all of this. And that's what matters. 
And, okay, I, I would engage, especially, again, you younger folks here. You're thinking, I don't believe that. I can't see it. I can't smell it. I can't taste it. I can't touch it. And what I would say to you this morning is that it's more real than the nose on your face. And it's what matters. Get your eyes, get your hearts off of earthly things, all of you, all of me, and build toward forever. We saw in the last application point that those who set their minds on earthly things have their end in destruction. And that they're enemies of the cross. You reckon you're going to progress toward holiness if you're an enemy of the cross? Paul goes on to say, we've almost covered all of Philippians 3. Watch this. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That's worth thinking about right there. We are aliens and strangers. We are just passing through. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're waiting for Jesus who when He comes is going to transform us to be like Him. Remember this from earlier in the year? For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us, there's that word, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope. What's your blessed hope, church? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. What's your blessed hope? Is it rolls and gravy at Thanksgiving? That is a blessed hope, but it's not the blessed hope. Is it a good Christmas gift? Is it a good Christmas? Is it getting to be with your family this Christmas because you couldn't do it last Christmas? Those aren't bad things, but they're not the best things. Our blessed hope is when the Son of God splits the eastern sky and says, I'm back. And we say, thank you. Because it's that that we're laboring and toiling and striving for. So how do we do this? Here's the application part of eternity. If then you've been raised with Christ, Colossians 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Set your minds. Train yourselves. Be immersed in these things. Persist in them. Train, command, teach, labor, toil, strive, practice, do not neglect, immerse in these things. And what I see all through the scripture is that there's no letdown here. All that time of training and striving pays off here and now and throughout all eternity. Paul says in another passage, not for a perishable crown but for an imperishable one. All this time and spirit-driven effort to finally hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy and rest of your loving Lord and your eternal King. I promise you, that's worth it. All the things that you lose, all the things that you cut away, end up seeming like rubbish. Compared to this. And you may be thinking, I've never experienced that. I don't know if I trust Him. Not me. Hope you can trust me. Trust what the Scripture says. Trust the, the giver and the writer and the living outer of these Scriptures. Trust Jesus Christ Himself, the eternal God. The living God. Who calls all men everywhere to be saved who calls us all to repentance from our sins. We're all sinners and we all need a Savior. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to purchase forgiveness for our sins. He died, He was buried, He resurrected Himself and was resurrected by the Father, by the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And He showed Himself alive and He ascended into heaven. And He is seated at the right hand of the Father 
waiting for the day that he comes back to judge the living and the dead. And you will give an account to this great king and this great judge. And you will either hear, depart from me, I never knew you, or you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Train, command, teach, labor, toil, strive, practice, do not neglect. Immerse yourself in these things. Persist in these things. Let's pray. Father, we are far too easily distracted. Give us one pure and holy passion. Give us one magnificent obsession. Jesus, please, please give us one glorious ambition for our lives. To know and to follow hard after you. To grow as your disciple in the truth. God, may we know and be able to say and proclaim this world is empty, pale, and poor. Compared to knowing you, our Lord. Lead us on. And we will run after you. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.